my son said last night that this was home and that home was home away from home. <laughs> I was slightly offended. <laughs> oh well, these younger generations. This morning I'd like to share with you just, I guess, a thought from Hebrews chapter 12. I understand that my good friend, Elder Gary Harvey, was here just just a little while ago and he spoke a little bit from this text. I don't know if this was his primary text for his uh, um, subject, but anyway, I've been looking at this um, passage for several weeks and I've gleaned a few things uh, from it. And this morning, I'd just like to share with you just just one little thought here before we go to the Lord in prayer. I'd like to say before I do that I very much appreciate what Brother Jeff brought to us last night. You know, we 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 a lot of times forget that God really is God, and that God doesn't owe us anything. He. He's God and He will be God. And He don't have to explain things to us. He can do what He wants to. And I appreciate I think it was Brother Marty's prayer last night in light of what was shared with us by Brother Jeff. And uh, it just really hit the nail on the head. You know, just kind of brought it all together. But another thing that really uh, struck me and I've known this, I believe this, but it was just, it was something that you could just almost lay hold of and say, see, here it is. And that is, God is very providential. He is very much involved in the lives of His people. That we're, I hope we're not here tonight, or today, that we don't, I don't think any of us here believe that God's, you know, that we're, you know, we're deists. You know, God just made this world, put us in it, and then he stands aloof from it, you know, and says, I'll see you on the morning of the resurrection. I think, you know, God is very much involved in the affairs of his people. You know, there's if, if he's not, then what's the point in prayer, you know? And the stories that um, Brother Jeff shared with us last night of some of the uh, deliverances that God wrought on behalf of his people there at Dawson Springs was just really encouraging to me. God's still on His throne. He's still on His throne. He's very much involved in the affairs of His people. So I appreciate it very much for that. Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. My question to you this morning is, what are you aiming at? What are you aiming at? I remember some years ago, there was, and I don't know if it was one of these motivation classes or, you know, whatever. Um, I never went to those. Um, I felt like I was motivated enough. But anyway, <laughs> other people would say, no, you're not. But anyway, be that as it may, I, I remember hearing, you know, the statement, you know, about setting goals. If you don't set a goal, you'll hit it every time. Okay? 
And, and that's so true. Well, I want you to understand that the Bible speaks about setting goals. And your goal and my goal, in one respect, should be the same. And the goal is Christ-likeness. Okay? Christ-likeness. Paul speaks in uh, Philippians chapter 3 about pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He talks about attaining unto the resurrection of the dead. You know, there was, there was something he was minded toward. He was something that he had the crosshairs, so to speak, set upon. And that's what he was moving toward. I want to encourage all of us here this morning that if you're not already thinking this way, let us think this way. Let us be minded to be like Christ, not just when we're in, you know, among the Lord's people, but even when we're by ourselves, let us be minded to be like Christ Jesus. Okay? Jesus, in this, well, I don't want to take too much time. Anyway, Jesus, who for the joy set before Him. I want you to think about that. There was something out there, okay, and here, the writer said, he calls it joy. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There's a lot of things you can overcome and you can get through if you have your eyes fixed on the right things. And that thing, if you allow me to say it that way, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be minded toward Christ. Let our goal be Christ-likeness. Let us keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus. If we can keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus, when the tornadoes come, when the storms of life come, when tragedy comes, it will be Jesus that will help us to get through it all. Yes, all right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the good song service. We thank you, Lord, for the zeal of thy people here. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the great encouragement that we receive being in among your people here today. Lord, we thank you so much for all that has gone before. We thank you for the message last night. We thank you for the encouragement that, um, that thou art real, that thou art upon your throne, that you work your will among the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay your hand nor say unto thee, What doest thou? We do thank you, Lord, that thou art sovereign. Lord, we thank thee that that though we are so insignificant, you take notice of us. Lord, we just thank you so much that you care for us. Lord, we pray thee as we go forward in this service, we pray that you would fill Brother Jeff with thy Holy Spirit. Bless him, Lord, to bring thy word to us. Bless him to deliver it in thy power and demonstration to thy spirit. And bless it to have free course and be glorified in all of them that hear it. Lord, we beg thy mercies upon our country. We pray, Lord, that you would so wrought upon the hearts of our leaders that they would do what is right and pleasing in thy sight, that thy people might lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. We pray, Lord, that you would also wrought among the hearts of thy people a great revival, a great turning unto thee, even as the prophet prayed, Lord, turn us, that we might be turned. Lord, again, we pray thee that thou would forgive us for our apathy, for our indifference, Bless us with a renewed zeal for uh, good works, Father, for a renewed zeal to be more and more like Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. 
and amen. Amen. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, for the love you've shown toward me, for the hospitality I've received. Please pray. When truth gets blurry, Second Peter chapter 2. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who probably shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Those are sobering verses, sobering words, warnings, I think, to this generation. Perhaps warnings to this generation more than any generation previous. When truth gets blurry, there are at least four places in the New Testament where it's prophesied, our day is prophesied, I do believe. When truth gets blurry, When it comes to the point where the truth that the Bible is truth is no longer truth in our culture. When that gets blurred. When that gets to the point where lots of folks, maybe even most folks, don't accept that anymore. Even Christian folks don't accept that anymore. When truth gets blurry and the word of truth is no longer truth in the minds of God's people. That's prophesied in the scriptures. It's prophesied in the scriptures that there will be a time, it started in scriptural days, but it'll get worse. When the very idea of Christ being the Son of God is no longer acceptable to God's people. Not just to the general culture, not just to the wicked, but God's people begin to question the Godhood of Christ, that He is God's Son. It's prophesied in the Scriptures that it would come a day when the Creator God would be challenged as Creator, that no such thing happened. And it's not that way. It's some other way. But God Creator is no longer God Creator in the minds of God's people. When truth gets blurry like that, we're on dangerous ground as a culture, as a nation, as churches. When truth gets blurry, the fourth idea is that Christ does not now exist, that he's not in heaven on the throne, that he's not coming back because he never went. Those four things we'd like to talk about this morning This isn't a traditional Primitive Baptist sermon. But maybe the Primitive Baptists, along with Christianity, has missed these things.
for two or three generations. Amen. And maybe that's what's wrong. Maybe we argue too much, and please don't get me wrong. I love truth, and I think with the truth glorifies God, and the truth will make you free. And the church is to be the pillar and ground of truth. And if you're going to worship, you've got to worship the Spirit and truth. I love truth, and I seek truth, and I want to know truth. Buy the truth and sell it not. But when we come to, as Christians, arguing with one another about the intricacies of the little things of truth, please take that mercifully. And we forget what Satan's really working on in our culture. And how he's robbing us of our generations of children. Warping their minds, teaching them falsehoods, teaching them that truth is no longer truth, and it's pretty blurry. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really exist anywhere. And you can just make up your own and you'd be as well off as anybody else. Let's think about ground level things this morning. The very idea of truth itself. Jesus is truth. Pilate looked in the face of truth and asked the profound question of all history. What is truth? If Satan, that's Satan's tactic through history, is to blur up the truth and deceive God's people. Jesus is truth. Satan is the father of lies. From the very beginning, that's how his mode of operation is. He came to Eve, he fed her a little truth, and then made it blurry. And in making it blurry in her mind and her thinking, he had her. When we lose these things of truth that we've been warned about in God's Word, the culture goes to the dogs, and the churches cease to be churches. I don't care if it's Primitive Baptist or whatever the name they carry. We're talking more this morning about Christianity than we are Primitive Baptist. We're talking about a ground level thing that we probably ignored throughout our lifetimes. And we wonder what's happened. And I think the Bible gives us the answers. Is it too late? I hope not. Let's find real truth. Let's hold, let's recognize the enemy. Paul said, I don't want you ignorant of his devices. These are four devices of his that the Bible's warned us to be on the lookout for. And I think it's all around us right now. Truth has become blurry. What are we going to do? I don't know that I've got the answer to that last one. But to recognize there's a problem is a start to maybe finding answers and how to approach this thing. Especially as we young people's minds are formed. So much influence from the world and so little influence on these major things from even our churches and our preachers. We start with Second Peter and quote the first two verses of that chapter is our text. But I'd like to take the time, and I I hesitate to do this. I've argued with myself prior to getting here this morning as to whether I should go back to 1 Peter or not, but I would like to. Because I think the first chapter, not 1 Peter, the first chapter of 2 Peter, I think is absolutely an amazing chapter in Scripture. I think at the close of this amazing chapter, we have this warning. And I think if we don't understand the first chapter, perhaps we'll not heed the warning of the second chapter hardly as much. So I'd like to go back and try to quickly go through the first chapter of Second Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them which to them that have obtained like precious faith. It's amazing how quick you hit a stumbling block, isn't it? I got to take time and hit that one just a little bit. That's not exactly old Baptist, is it? Well, it is. You just got to understand what it's saying. When we say have obtained, when we obtain something, we get it by effort. Is that not the English definition now? Is that not what we think, that we get it by effort? Is that how faith comes by our effort? That we reach out and get it and grab it and do something to have it? The Bible doesn't teach that. If this is all we have, we might believe that. 
But this is not all we have. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus is the author of our faith. Philippians chapter 1, it is given unto us to believe. Faith is from God, by His power, by His divine allotment. So, how do you sort this out? I've been ridiculed by some through the years of going to the Greek. Forgive me. I don't understand Greek. I can't read Greek. But I can read reference books. And sometimes that's the only place I find my answer is in the original language. Because the original language, some words in that language, they're translated into our language and they don't mean what we think of in English. But what this Greek word is, and I can't say Greek words, when it's translated into English letters, it's L-A-G-C-H-A-N-O. I'm going to take a stab and say Lagcano, just to have a word to say. That's probably not even, I hope nobody here understands and can speak Old Testament Greek. The meaning of that word is not that you get it by effort. It is the casting of the lot, or by divine allotment. That's what the word meant in the original language. That changes everything, doesn't it? And you say, the casting of the lot? What is that? The lot is cast into the lap, and the disposing of the whole thing is of the Lord, Proverbs. It's by divine allotment that God used the lot throughout the scriptures as a picture, as a way to tell the people His will in the matter. How was the promised land divided? By the lot. I'm thinking of the rolling of the dice or the flipping of the coin. Is God a gambler? No. He doesn't gamble on anything. Nothing's but chance. It's by divine allotment. But he shows his choices by the casting of the lot. The whole book of Esther, the whole book of Esther is God's providence. There's no better book in the Bible to go to and see God's providence, though God's name is not mentioned. A key of that story is the P-U-R pur that the wicked Haman cast to determine which day he would destroy every Jew in the world. Who was at the disposing of that lot? It came late in the year, the roll of the dice. Was that by accident? Or was that so the scene could unfold? It unfolded. It's an amazing story. We don't have time to go through it. But at the end of the book, the Jews made a holiday. And it's still celebrated by the Jews in the world today. It's called P-U-R-I-M. And I don't know how to say that one either for sure. I'm a country boy. Purim, a Jewish holiday to celebrate the lot, the divine allotment, the providence of God, where he's in control, and it's not by chance. It is by divine allotment that we have faith. It doesn't stop there. It continues on. Obtained, let's start off, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained, not by effort, by divine allotment. Obtained like precious faith with us through. Here's the means. It's not through our means. It's through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and and our Lord Jesus Christ. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Does faith pertain unto life and godliness? Well, how did it happen? By your effort? Did you get it by effort or it is, is it by His divine allotment? Is it through Him? Is it by the divine power of God that has been given to us? Amen to those things. That's what it's saying to us. So now we've made our disclaimer and tried to cover that. Let's read on. If you skip over these things, you're not being fair to the Scriptures. 
nor fair to the author of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. Let's find what he was saying. And he doesn't contradict himself. Three times here he explains to us, he expounds to us that faith is a gift of God here. It's God that gives it to us by his divine allotment. It's through him and it's according to his divine power that we have it. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. I think the second thing's interjected here, the gift of faith, that's by divine allotment, and the knowledge that we have through the revelation of the scriptures. Those two things tied together. The ability to believe, the ability to believe and what to believe. Oh, those are key. Yes. That's what life's supposed to be all about. That he gives us the ability to believe, the fruit of the Spirit, faith, and then he tells us what to believe in his revelation of his word. Amen. That we have the knowledge base and the ability to believe that. That's what chapter 1 is talking about. He goes on and expounds upon this throughout the chapter. Verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge patience, and to patience and to, to knowledge temperance and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. Don't stop with faith, the gift of God. Right. Add to it. Add to grow from it. Proceed on in becoming a walking, talking Christian. <laughs> good. Faith without works is dead. Yeah. Works comes in here. It's an effort to do these things. You did not get the faith by effort. But once the faith has been faith has been given, and then the the knowledge of see Jesus hanging on a cross for me, that's my motivation to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And I need to be different to the world. The love of Christ constraineth us that we are compelled with our love to Him to add to faith these things and to grow in Christianity and to climb that ladder of worship in God so that we finally get to that top rung of the ladder that agape love, that sacrificing of self. And everything about me for the cause of Jesus Christ. What a glorious statement that is. But that's not our message. I could get hung up on some of this stuff. <laughs> this is good stuff, folks. It's a great chapter. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God plants the faith, and then the faith produces fruit. The fruit of the Spirit within us produces fruit to God's glory. That we not be barren that we not be useless citizens of the kingdom of God, that we do something to give Him glory, that we do something to help others, that we live who we are, who we've been made to be. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. When I'm with my eye of faith looking at Jesus hanging on that cross hurting for me, I'm in the mood to serve Him. When that's not my life view, when that's not my central focus, I'm distracted and I've forgotten. I have forgotten. I've become blinded to what He did for me. I've forgotten that He's cleansed me from my sins. I've forgotten what it took to make me a child of God and I cease to serve Him. As long as I'm adding to faith those things, I'm serving Him, I'm producing fruit. And when I quit looking at Jesus, I quit serving Him. It's just nature's way. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. You ever wonder whether you're the child of God or not? When do you wonder those things? When you're adding to your faith and when you're looking at the cross and when you're seeing Jesus hanging? No, it's when you're not doing those things that you begin to wonder, am I really a child of God the way I'm acting? Wow. 
way of wasting my life. You know how you can make your election sure, not just to others, but to your own mind? Well, do these things, and you're pretty sure of this. When you're loving him with all your heart and serving him with everything that's in you, you, you don't have much doubt what's your his at that point. He kind of gives you that feeling. And when you're not, I think the Holy Spirit also gives us conviction. So you can make your calling and election. You can find peace in your soul by doing these things. You'll, you'll be benefited by it in your, very, in your very conscience, in what's in you that troubles you or doesn't trouble you, that thing that's in there that, that either plagues us or lifts us up and encourages us. You can find sureness that you are a child of God when you're doing these things. We read on. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That one needs some development too, but I won't take much time. Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. It speaks here of an abundant life. It speaks here of a kingdom. I don't think that's the kingdom up yonder that we go to when we die. I think it's up yonder and I think we will go, but I think there's a kingdom of heaven at hand. If something's at hand, you can get a hold of it. It's right here, right now. Jesus used it that way in in the garden when, when he says, the hour is at hand. And he that cometh to me is at hand. That's hour, is time, it's now time, and he's here. Now and here. Now and here. At hand, you can take a hold of it. You can have a bit of heaven while you're here. That's not going to sound bad, does it? Heaven on earth, we speak of it, so did Jesus. I think that's the everlasting kingdom that you can go ahead and get into ahead of time. That doesn't sound bad, does it? Get the earnest of your inheritance and feast upon it even today. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, suitable, fitting, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Peter says, my time's nearly here. Jesus had told Peter a long time ago, probably at this point, you're going to hang on a cross one day. They'll spread your arms and they'll do to you what you wouldn't want done to you, signifying what death he would die in John chapter 21. And Peter's sensing that that's getting close. He's spending his last days putting them in remembrance. What happens when we become forgetful, when we become blind and forget that Jesus hung on the cross for us, we cease to serve him. What's Peter wanting us to remember? The story of Jesus Christ. The account that's been given. I want to tell you something. A lot of religions in this world are based on blind faith. Christianity is based on history. Amen. That's a significant difference. We've got documents and others that show this really happened. This isn't made up stuff. Paul looks at Agrippa and said, this thing wasn't done in a corner. You know all about it, King. The whole world knew about him. Over 500 saw him. He came back and with many infallible proofs. It's history. He was and he still is. The book is truth. Peter said, I want to draw these things you remember so that after my decease, you'll understand. You'll know these things. That's what the Bible is. It's snippets of history throughout history that give us God's revelation. 
What did what did what did Luke say at the beginning of at the beginning of his gospel? He he says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of these things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He goes on there. I'm going to tell you what I saw. I'm an investigator. I've talked to folks and I'm going to write it down so you'll have it. We have history documented that we stand upon as Christians. Peter said, remember it. We've got something to remember that goes clear back to the beginning. Documented history about the world that tell us about God. After my decease, Peter said, I want you to keep these things in mind. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Hmm. That sounds like world religions, doesn't it? Made up by men. Some of it fables. Some of it mythology. Some of it called by this and called by that. Designs by men that some follow. Peter said, we not followed that. That's not what we follow as Christians. It's some idea of some man that invented some kind of religion. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my well beloved this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Wow. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there. I saw it with my own beady eyes. I woke up from my sleep and there he was, glorified. And there comes Moses and Elijah. And he said, Peter didn't know what to say, but he said something anyway. That's dangerous, isn't it? And he said, let's build three tabernacles. And then he heard that voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. All of a sudden, I think Elijah and Moses went back quicker than they came. We're going to get them back on up here so you're looking just at Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Don't be building any tabernacles to any of my people. Build the tabernacle of my son, Jesus Christ. Peter said, I was there. I saw it. I heard it. You talk about a revelation from God. Peter had, had it, man. He, he Don't you envy him a little bit? Wouldn't you like to have seen it? What does he say next in this chapter? We have also a more sure word of prophecy. You've got something better than Peter, James, and John saw on that mountain. Maybe if they were to know what we would have, eventually they might have envied us. It's starting to come into, into frame here with Peter. He said, wow, I'm seeing something that you have that, that nobody's ever had before. What do we have? One statement from God on a holy mountain? We've got hundreds of pages of statements of God. Sure. Preserved by God until the end of time. We've got God's Word. We have a more sure word of prophecy than what Peter had on that mountain that day. We have a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Unlike those cunningly devised fables, ours didn't come from some individual somewhere. It wasn't some man's thoughts that was put down on paper. 
There were men that wrote the book inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write what they wrote when they wrote it. From goat herders to Christian killers, they'd write the book under God's inspiration. A more sure word of prophecy, God's revelation to man. They would question Paul as to, how do you know what you're talking about? Hey, I was given this by revelation. The mystery revealed to me. The mystery that had been hidden in God from the ages. Paul and Peter and these writers put it on record for us to have God's words forever. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They wrote what God said the way God said it. And we have it. A more sure word. A lot more information than was given on that mountain that day. God's revelation to his children. That's what's been taken away from our children. Is the idea that this is God's word. Yes. It started in the minds of, of great philosophers so-called great philosophers, brilliant minds, began to dissect this book and look for other explanations. It started two or three hundred years ago, primarily in Germany probably, but quickly spread to other parts of the world. And it sounded good. It explained away what we couldn't understand. It explained away the miracles, and as one generation passed to another generation, these scholarly men developed these ideas, but pretty much nobody knew about them. Pretty much it was just among the skeptics and the scholars and the cynics that these ideas about the Bible, they called it higher criticism. They labeled it with a big fancy name that we're smarter than you are because we know these things and you don't. We've seen through it. That is not God's word. It's not been given by God. There's really not much more to it than any other book. It's exceptional literature, but take it at that. Now then, that has not stopped with the scholars in Germany. It's proceeded to the culture. And it's still the smart men right. and the teachers. Not that all, not all teachers. I hesitate to use Please, I'm not lumping everybody into this category. But it's out there. Yeah. And it's real. That you can't trust the Bible anymore. And even in Christian churches, it's explained away. Yes. That Paul really didn't mean what he said about women. <laughs> I don't know why Paul was the way he was. You know, he was kind of a rascal, really. We can't really trust that. I don't think we need to believe that part. I want to tell you what, when you start throwing the parts out, then the sky's the limit. If it's not true from cover to cover, we have nothing. If I can't take it as a whole and believe it is God's word then what do I have more than anybody else? We do have the advantage as Christians of having God's revealed word. It proves itself to be true with the hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, with the statements about science that it makes, and when it speaks of science, it gets it right. Did you know that Isaiah knew about an ever-expanding universe? That's pretty awesome, isn't it? We just figured that out, I don't know, a few years ago. There's lots of examples like that. It's not the time to go into those things. You do hold 
the revelation of God's mind in your hand when you have this book. It is true from the first of Genesis to the last of Revelation. It is God's word. It is truth. The idea that Jesus is not really the Son of God, that he was a good man, a great philosopher, a world changer, full of kindness and compassion. And if we'll follow his ways, the world would be a better place, you know. Recognize him as one of the bunch of good folks that have influenced history. Is that who he is? Just another history changer, just another man among great men, maybe the best of the great men. People will give him that. The scholars will give him that. Humanity will give him that oftentimes. Some scoff at him and hate him totally. But some will give him such things. There's another idea that Satan began to develop even in Paul's day and Jesus' day, the idea of Antichrist. The idea of Antichrist. I don't really think it's somebody. I think it's a spirit. And when I say I think it's a spirit, I don't mean it's a spirit like Satan's a spirit and angels are spirits. I think it's a spirit that's spread through the world. A thinking, an idea, a concept, a very intriguing thing, the Antichrist idea. I think it started out much smaller than it's become. We look at the Antichrist in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. And we, you have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists. Antichrist shall come, but there are now many. Is there one big one going to come at the end? Well, yeah, in a way. But don't be looking for somebody. Be looking for a change in thinking. Be looking for a Satan-led idea that's against Christ. Verse 22 in chapter 2. Who is, a, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? Who is the liar? The one that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Who's telling the truth? The one that confesses that Jesus is the Christ because that is truth. But if that truth becomes blurry in the minds of our generations, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes right and wrong. It changes how we look at things. It changes what we accept into our homes. It changes how we think, even as Christians, if the truth about Christ being the Son of God becomes blurry. Verse 22, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So it is somebody who's claiming the idea of denying the Father and the Son. Oh yeah, there's some kind of mystical God somewhere. A lot of people will give you that. Satan will give you that on the right day, if that's not his argument for that day. He'll give you that much. He'll, he'll, he'll lead you in with that much. But, but this Son of God thing, I mean, that's impossible now, isn't it? How did God become nothing in a womb? <laughs> I don't know. How did God, who is like, die on a cross? <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> and he keeps on throwing these I don't knows at me, and before long, I'm beginning to wonder what I do know about him. And what, what I've heard about him is real. And especially if I'm going to to college classes where I'm hearing other things about him, and especially if I'm hanging around with most folks in this world where I'm hearing other things, and oh yeah, he's a good guy, and we, we know that, but man, you're some kind of fanatic. You're some kind of fool to believe that. Who could believe the very idea? It's so illogical, so paradoxical, the very idea of God being a man, or a man being God. Well, that's why he killed him. That's why they killed him. They were smart enough back then to know there's no such thing as God being a man. Chapter 4, 1 John. Beloved, believe not every spirit. Maybe this is Satan saying something on your shoulder, whispering into your ear. 
Or maybe this is an idea that's floated around that's becoming more and more popular. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't listen to everything that's out there. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Whether they are of God. How do you try them? God's Word of Truth that's is right. the test. That's right. We're back to that one. If the book's not truth, then what do we try the spirits with? How do we tell what's wrong and right? Who's wrong and right? What voice we should listen to? Try the spirits. Test them by God's Word. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. There's our warning. That's his tactic. That's Satan's technique. To put the spirit of doubt in my mind somewhere where I begin to question the very idea of a God-man Jesus Christ having come into this world. We're told to look out for it. We're told that's his tactic, and we're seeing it all around us, and we're falling for it. Even so-called Christian churches. What's it say here? Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, but up in the second verse, hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus is come in the flesh is of God. We've got a lot of common ground in this basic stuff with folks that's got a different sign out front now, don't we? Yes, there's some things we need to hang together as Christians and defend. Yes. And there's some things that both sides have lost in our arguments against each other of how the primitive Baptist is a cult. No, you're the cult. No, you're the cult. No, you're the liar. No, we're the liar. No, I forgot. You're the liar. Sometimes we argue about the little things and we're losing generations to this big thing, this foundational thing, that Christ is Christ, that Jesus is God. If he's not, we have nothing. If we say he is and no others that say he is, we've got a lot of foundational common ground together. Christianity has to remain Christianity if we're going to stand against a culture that's becoming more and more anti-Christian, anti-Christ. Listen to the spirit of another voice. Listen to the ideas that you can't trust this stuff. This is old-timer country boy stuff like that stupid guy that came from Kentucky talk about. Us down here in Georgia, we're more cultured than that, you know. Not meaning to make light of it. It's real. And it's what our children face. We don't realize this in church families. In church families, we think we're okay. I'm the dad and I'm in charge and we say our prayers before we eat and we read the Bible some with the kids and and we're doing okay. We're doing okay. My kids, this won't hurt my kids. They know better. Believe you me, this can hurt your kids and your grandkids because they don't know better. We battle not we battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. The whole armor of God is required to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's as a roaring lion seeking whom we devour, and your kids sound tasty to him. He'd love to eat them up. And he's done it for generations. And he's doing it still. And I come here and I see younger folks in the church than I see at home. It's folks my generation. He's got us in western Kentucky. The only churches that have kids around home that I know of are the churches 
that have big parties and entertain the kids. And I got a feeling he's got them too. They just like the parties. And I don't, I'm not trying to talk about another church. And again, I've just said that I shouldn't be doing that. I'm just trying to say that I think he's got his grips on us more than we realize. And I think our college professors, not all of them, please forgive me, not all of them. But I think we've got people in high positions in government, in education, in, in, in positions that, that lead young people to admire such folks. And, and they're pretty smart folks, and you kind of look up to them, and you do look up to them. And, and if he says something, he's probably smarter, really, than that babbling idiot that preaches every Sunday morning. We've got to realize the enemy, and we've got to realize the cause at stake. And we've got to go, go deeper than arguing continually about a gospel regeneration. Forgive me, I, I want to defend the truth to the very nth degree. But I don't want to miss the, the war by fighting these little tiny skirmishes. Let's realize what's before us, America, yes. Christian America, and let's stand up for the cause. We've got a spirit of Antichrist that's running wild in our culture. Yes. Wild in our culture. No respect for him, even the name. And we've got the same spirit in our culture. Remember the Old Testament verse? I can't remember where it is. But seven women take the same man that they might carry his name. There's advantages to carrying the name of Christ in our culture still. It may come to the point where that's a disadvantage, and it probably is in some places now. But as long as you can carry the name, but not have to really think he's God or preach that he's God or acknowledge that he's God, that's still Antichrist. It's just a Satan Satan deception. The third one. Oh my goodness, I'm out of time. The third one. What if there's no creator God? Does that really matter? Folks, it really matters. It matters big time. Did the Bible warn us that there would be an attitude of that? Did God know about Darwin? (laughs) I want to tell you, Darwin knew better. You read his writings. He said the I disproves it all, but I believe it anyway. He didn't say that. That's not a quote. And it does. I won't take the time to give you a physiological, physiological lecture on the eye, but it's, it's, it doesn't work without all the parts doing the right thing at the right time. That's the only way vision works. It's not piecemeal. You don't all of a sudden have a mutation and you've got a pupil. Well, no, first you had to have a mutation to have an eyeball. Just a ball sitting in your head. And then maybe somebody got two of them. The two ballers and the one baller. It happens that way in, in evolution, you know. A mutation after a few million years. All of a sudden there's a hole in that eyeball. It's called a pupil. They probably didn't call it that back then. They said, man, that guy's weird. He's got a hole in his eyeball. But they couldn't see because they didn't have all the parts yet. They probably didn't say that. Well, I'm getting crazy. You said I was weird. I'm sorry. Anyway, enough said. i got to get back to my subject. If it's just got a pupil, if it's got a pupil in the iris, if it's got a pupil in the iris and a retina, if it's got all the parts but one, it can't work. It couldn't have happened piecemeal. All things work together with the God of creation. Works together because he made it to work together. All things work together in the God of salvation because he made it all work together. You think predestination and justification and regeneration and glorification all work together? That's the way it works. It all works together and it gets the job done. I want to throw one out to ponder that's probably going to hurt my reputation further. All things work together in providence if he's God. If he's God, all things work together in providence. If they don't, he's not God and he's off his throne. And Satan's ruling today. That's a complex statement. 
But I think he's just as true as the other two. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> Back to creation. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Did God know what was going to happen in modern day science? Did God know the challenge that He as Creator would face? Man, this is written way ahead of the time. The Bible is contemporary. It's for right now. It's for our generation. It's for today. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That word hold is to suppress or to hold down or to try to keep it in and not let it out. To let a lie replace the truth. That the false prophet, that the false prophet, where did the false prophets come in in Second Peter? I forgot my text almost, hadn't I? Right after, right after the faith that's given so we can know the revealed word. Faith given so we can know the revelation of God, the chapter First Peter, and then the second chapter. But beware, there's false prophets who will deny the truth. The truth of God's word being denied, that's prophesied. That idea that Christ is not Christ, that's been prophesied. He's a good man. He's a great person. He's a historical wonder, but he's not God. Now we come to the idea of creation. The truth that's suppressed, held down. God's wrath is against all suppression of truth. He goes, this is a complex chapter. It goes on and on, but, but we just want the first part of it here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness, all, unga- all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in, in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it unto them. Mm-hmm. Open your eyes and look. Right. Watch the sun come up in the morning, Psalm 19. Watch it run its race across the sky, Psalm 19, and sit. And get up, set your alarm in the morning and get up and watch it do it again. It made that race for a lot of times, for a long time throughout history. It keeps doing it. That every man has eyes to see. In no language is that not seen or heard or talked about. The wonder of the Creator God that makes that sun come across the sky every day and the next day and the next day. The universe with all of its centrifugal and centripetal forces that are balanced perfectly, that stay where they are, that sun's hung on nothing, the earth's hung on nothing, except the power of God, the balance of the universe, all things work together in the physical universe where the balances are perfect and it just keeps on keeping on. So that in no language is that voice not heard, the sun rising. We have evidence, if we look at things logically, that there has to be a God out there somewhere. Only the fool would deny such. But look at the wise men that deny it. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. The same scientists that explain the human body and the complexities of how it's all put together say it all happened. The same scientists who look at the universe in its vastness and send telescopes to look at the far beyond and see those things with their eyes. They deny the Creator God who made it all. It is so illogical, unreasonable, unthinkable. It's from somebody that's not thinking to say such a thing. The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Of all people that should defend this is the ones they know the most about it. The more you learn about this body... Do you know there's a muscle on the inside of the eye? 
but it's not hardly long enough to make it do what God wanted that muscle to do. It needs to make the eyeball do that right there, kind of where you're looking down and out. You know what God did? That muscles have to attach to a bone and then to whatever they're moving. The distance from the top of the eye where that muscle comes across to the to the bone there, the nasal bone, wasn't hardly long enough to get the effect it needed. You know what God did? He put a cartilage pulley right there on the side of that nose bone and ran the string of that muscle through that pulley and attached it back in on the, uh, the inside of your skull to get the length he needed. The engineer knew how to do it. Amen. He didn't need to make, make our eyes this far apart to make it work. He just put a rope through a pulley and took it back to where he needed for the engineering science. When you've dissected a human body and seen that, how can you not believe some kind of intelligence is behind that? They've clearly seen, and the more they've seen, the smarter they ought to be, but the more they see, the dumber they get. I don't mean to be cruel, but they're destroying Christianity with their lies, and it's Satan that's doing it. Clearly seen, understood by the things that are made, even the eternal, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were made thankful, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, their foolish heart was dark, and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's God's statement about evolution written in the first century of Christianity. Who needs that message more? The Bereans or the Thessalonians or the Americans? It was written for us, folks. Those folks back then weren't struggling with these things. They kind of scratched their head and thought, I wonder what that's, wonder what that's all about. <laughs> Who's thinking that way? The world's thinking that way now. Christianity is the lie. And evolution is fact. You read it in the textbooks. You read that in the textbooks. Mm-hmm. Evolution is fact. Well, it's not. True. But most folks believe that because they've been told it so many times. I had an opportunity to do something I'd always wanted to do. I wanted to teach a college class. There was an opportunity. I had, the, I had it. It was mine. I said, could I see the, the objectives of the course? One of the course objectives was to teach evolution. I handed the paper back to the man and I said, I don't think I'm the man for your job. Another man involved in the, in the selection, he said, you know, you could get by without teaching that. We want you to, we want you to come and, and teach. We think you'd do well. But you could just kind of leave that out. And I said, I can't sign that paper and leave that out with a clear conscience. And I certainly can't teach it with a clear conscience. And I walked away. That's okay. I didn't want to be a part of that system. And I know people are stuck in that system and, and have to make a living. I'm not trying to condemn any teacher here. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm just saying Satan's got us like that. He's got us in such a bind that if you're in school, you've got to pass the test. And if you're teaching school, you've got to teach the syllabus. And if you're not going to be a fool, you've got to join with the wise men and not on the fool side. When the fool side is who says there's no creator. If we give up the first three chapters of Genesis... You can throw the book out. If we can't trust that part, then where do we draw a line? The last part, the last truth that's become blurry. We stay in Second Peter, and we find in the third chapter. Where's the promise of his coming? So the scoffers say. He's not coming back. No such thing as him the first time. He didn't come the first time. 
as God and He's not coming back. Where is the promise of His coming? All things remain as they were from the beginning when they truly know they're willingly ignorant of the fact that the earth and the heavens were made by the Word of God. If you give up the idea of Christ, if you give up the teachings of the book, then where is the promise of His coming? What do we have to stand upon if we're throwing Genesis out? Do we throw 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 out where He's coming back? Well, the logical man would tell you you're a fool for believing such a thing. Now, how can the dead be raised? They asked him that, asked Paul that in that generation, didn't they? I don't know how. I just know that the dead will be raised. Christ knows how. The promise of his coming, he's coming back. He came the first time to pay for his children. You think with the price he paid, he's not going to come back and get what he paid for? He's not a big dummy. He's coming back. It's a promise. In hope of eternal life, which the God has promised, who cannot lie. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of that great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. He came the first time and gave himself. He's coming back. There are truths that get blurry. The truth that the Bible is truth. The truth that Jesus is the Son of God. The truth that God Almighty is creator and being creator, it's his. It's his. And the idea that Jesus now lives and is coming back. Take the blur out of those things. The truth is truth. And there's no such thing as two truths. I don't care what politician tells you what. Two statements about the same thing that say something different cannot both be truth. They might both be a lie, but they cannot both be truth. There's no such thing as alternative truth. The truth is in God's Word. The truth will make you free. The church is the pillar ground of truth. And we need to defend truth perhaps back a little further, deeper, more foundational than what we focused on. Not to quit focusing on the other. There's lots of sermons to preach in a year. Every once in a while, go back to these basic truths. The foundation of foundations. These four things that don't need to become blurry. We don't need to lose our sight of these things. Or our country is gone. Is it too late? I don't think so. It's going to take a lot of legwork and a lot of teaching and a lot of persistence. But I think these things need to be taught in def- to, to give the other side of the equation to what we're hearing all over the world around us. God bless you.